Let me uh, bow in a word of prayer, and we'll get going. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and your faithfulness to us. Uh, I pray that you would be with us today. Um, Help us to be thankful, most of all, for your son and his defeating sin and death on our behalf. I pray that we would be thankful for waking today with the breath in our lungs that you gave us um, for the food that you provide to us. Um, Help us to have thankful hearts and listening ears. I pray that you would be with me today as I speak. Uh, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 117, um, that God sent us to preach the gospel, not for eloquent, eloquent words uh, of wisdom, but simply that your word would be known. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I will start by telling you a story. Um, I tried to merge a bunch of references together, and Ken did a very good job this week of coaching me better than I've ever been coached in preaching. Um, And he said, simplify it. So you get the simplified story. When I was much younger, I had the need for speed. Um, At that time, I owned the fastest car I have ever owned in my life. It was a Toyota MR2 Turbo, which I sadly sold since then, probably for the best. Um, But one evening, I was with one of my sisters and headed to hang out with one of my brothers. And I was really pushing it this night. Um, I was blasting down one of the longest straights on the island that I grew up on, and suddenly out of nowhere I hear warning noises, and my radar detector has gone off, and I realize I was caught. There's a policeman behind me, and I pull over, lights flashing, Spotlight shining in my eyes through the rearview mirror, and I am feeling like an idiot. Am I going to lose my car? Am I going to lose my license? I was going very fast. Am I going to do time in the pen? What's going to happen here? Uh, But no matter what, I'm guilty, and I was caught. So I'm sure most of you know this feeling to one degree or another. Uh, But as it turns out, the sheriff who pulled me over was an old family friend. The benefits of growing up on a small island. So now, though, I'm even more ashamed than if he had been a stranger. He was extremely angry. He was livid. But after some back and forth, he let me off with a relatively mild ticket. It was expensive, but he could have done far worse. There was a catch, though. I had to go home and tell my mom, his friend, what I had done, and she got to decide my punishment. (laughs) So I had no choice but to either come clean 
or hide my bad behavior. I woke up the next morning with this decision hanging over my head and walked upstairs and told my mom everything. So I know that I was a very disappointing son to my mom in that moment. But she wasn't in the most punitive mood that morning, and the weight off of my shoulders in confessing to her was worth it. I would be lying if I told you I never sped in my car again. But I would like to think that that was a changing point in my life where that need for speed started to die off and I was a little bit more responsible. So where does that bring us to today with 1 Samuel 3? We'll look at a couple of very bad sons, particularly in 1 Samuel 2, who never came clean and a father who did not hold them accountable. And in 1 Samuel 3, we'll also look at a very good son in Samuel. You'll recall a few weeks back in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that Hannah, Samuel's mother, is desperate for a son, a request which God eventually sees fit to honor. And then a couple weeks ago, on Mother's Day, Ken examined the first half of chapter 2, where Hannah takes the truth to heart from James 1.17, that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And as she takes this to heart, that God is her good father and he gives good gifts, worship and praise for the Lord comes out of her as a natural result of this understanding. So today, we'll examine in the rest of chapter 2 how God rejects Eli's two bad sons who are unfaithful and disobedient, while God is raising up and calling a faithful and obedient prophet in Hannah's good son, Samuel. So, just like I have played the bad son at times in my life, speeding, and I have other worse examples, uh, I have also played a good son and those are both something that every one of us can empathize with. We've all been a good child or a bad child at points in our life. Each one of us is a son or a daughter, and we have some high points that we're very proud of and low points that we are ashamed of. So we won't be able to look at everything in these chapters today. It's a long section, but we will look at three things. So for those of you who are taking notes, first, Samuel hears from God, and in this he is called to be the next prophet. And we'll go over these again as we work through them. Second, Eli's sons do not hear from God, and they are rejected. And third, we'll learn about bearing with God's sovereignty in his timing. So first we'll see how Samuel hears from God, starting in chapter 3. So verse 1 sets us up. Samuel is a young man. He is learning from Eli essentially as an apprentice in the place of worship. And it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And we will get back to that. We'll talk about it a little later. But despite this, God chooses to speak to Samuel. In this passage, God tries four times 
Daniel was kind of laughing at that when he read the passage. Uh, But he tries four times to speak to Samuel. The first three times, Samuel thinks that Eli, his mentor, is calling him, and he keeps responding, here I am. In this, God is displaying his patience with Samuel because Samuel is inexperienced in hearing from the Lord. It says that explicitly in this passage. Even God's chosen servants don't always get it right the first time, sometimes the second time, sometimes even the third time, as we see here. But God gives grace to Samuel for his inexperience. We may not know or recognize when God is being patient with us, yet he is determined to accomplish his will. So, eventually with some help from his mentor, Eli, Samuel gets it right on the fourth try, and God pronounces his judgment through Samuel onto Eli's household. Now, at this point, some of you may be feeling like it's great that Samuel heard from God, but you haven't, perhaps in a long time or maybe never. So I want to examine today why is it that we might not be hearing from God. I don't want to be trite with my first answer, but an obvious point is that we always have scripture available to us. Uh, I know it's a pat answer in many cases, but we do need to be faithful to actually open our Bibles, devote time to read it, to meditate on it. If God has not been speaking to you or me, have we been faithful to listen to him through his living and breathing word? Have you shown your desire or your appetite to God in actual time spent in your Bible? It's easy to talk about it in my case, but very easy to brush by it in our busy days. And likewise, in addition to spending time in the Bible, do we actually spend time in disciplined silence, waiting for God to answer us or speak to us? If we're really hungry for something, if we really want to hear from God, we're usually willing to put in the time to get it. In men's group this past Thursday, as we're working through the the disciplines, we discussed silence specifically, and I think it was generally accepted, most of us there, um, that we're not great at this. It's easy to get distracted and to let our thoughts take us captive, but with practice, we can take our thoughts captive instead. On the other hand, maybe the message God is relaying is one that you or I don't want to hear. And that is why we're not hearing from God. We might not want God to speak directly to us. Most of the time in the Bible, when God speaks directly to someone, God asks them to do something that's hard or unpleasant. So a couple examples that we can look at are God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. Again, the men's group, (laughs) we... I thought we were going to go to that slide. I don't think I have a slide for that one. (laughs) Um, But with men's group, we were looking at the book of Jonah, and he does not want to go. God says, hey, this sinful city has risen up in my sight, and Jonah says, I don't want to go. Likewise, another example is 
Moses in Exodus being called to stand up to Pharaoh, who is arguably the most powerful man in the world at that time. And God says, hey, go stand up to him. Again, not something he's comfortable with or wants to hear from God. So this is certainly true for Samuel as well in our passage today. He has to go and tell his mentor that God's judgment is upon his sons and his family. So in verse 15, Samuel lays awake until morning. And part of that is very likely that he's just heard from God himself. I would like to think if I heard from God audibly like this, it would keep me awake. And I would guess if any of us heard from God audibly, we would be a bit too stunned to fall asleep quickly. But he's also kept awake knowing that in the morning, he has to go pronounce judgment to his own mentor from God. And he is afraid to tell Eli. It says that again in verse 15. That cannot be a good feeling to tell your mentor that he and his family, which I want to make a side note and say your family was much more important in these days. Um, like that is your lineage, that is everything to you. Um, so to tell your mentor that he and his family as the priests are going down is a big deal. And yet Samuel was faithful to do so. He tells Eli everything and hides nothing from him, it says in verse 18. Now, to Eli's credit, he asks for it. He says, don't hide it from me. So, that is to his credit, even though it's hard to hear. But going back to this idea of God speaking to us, perhaps we're waiting for God to speak to us as he did to Samuel, audibly. Yet, God may speak audibly to us in another way, besides scripture or in silence, um, but through his people and his church. In Hebrews 10.24, it says that we are to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Likewise, we are to call each other away from sin. So in this passage, inexperience on Samuel's part poses a barrier to hearing from God's voice. And in the next passage, we'll see how sin may pose a barrier to hearing from God in Eli's sons. So we'll go from chapter 3, step back to the second half of chapter 2, and look at Eli's sons. Starting in verse 12, we can answer the question, why did God need Samuel in the first place? Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they are the priests. They're supposed to be faithful and obedient examples to God's people. God needed to call Samuel because Hophni and Phinehas are being willfully disobedient. Verse 12 says straight up, they did not know the Lord. They were not concerned with honoring God as he had specifically directed them to treat offerings to the people, from the people in the temple or the place of worship. They were abusing the sacrifices, so much so that even the normal and ordinary Israelites who were coming to give their offerings were shocked. And in verse 16, a worshiper is trying to tell Eli's sons how it's supposed to be done. So this is actually 
backwards. The priest should be the one telling the, the ordinary folks how they're supposed to give their offerings. But in fact, these sons are doing it so poorly Is that better? I guess my battery's dead. All right, so the sons are doing it so poorly, their job, that even ordinary Israelites know better how they're supposed to be doing things in the place of worship. So, in addition, in verse 22, Eli hears that his sons are sleeping with the women who serve at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So these are not cult prostitutes, as some people speculate. Um, And later in chapter 4, in verse 19, we actually learn that one of Eli's sons, at least, Phinehas, is married and his wife is pregnant. So this is very offensive stuff to God in his place of worship. Eli's sons were entitled, and God had historically promised his position, this position, to Eli and their family to serve in in the place of worship. But they were very comfortable. It's clear that food in them stealing the offerings was an idol to them. Sex was an idol to them in the way that they were treating women. So essentially, it is their stomachs and their spirituality, or their stomachs and their sexuality that are taking the place of idols in their lives. They're doing the opposite of one of the great Eugene Peterson quotes that Ken often recites to us, we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel our way into a new way of acting. Mm -hmm. These two sons are feeling their way into acting, and it's not going well. So a question for us today, as we look at what is making Eli's sons feel secure is what makes us feel secure. What are our idols that get in the way of honoring God? Many Americans assume that they are Christian. Oh, I said a prayer one time to accept Jesus at camp. When I was a kid, I'm cool, I'm going to heaven, and that's it. And they go on living their life essentially apart from any commands that Jesus gives us but they abuse it as a license to continue their sinful way of life. They're not concerned with God. Their behavior shows they're only concerned with themselves and their own idols of comfort, power, their titles, positions. Their interest in serving God goes no further than ensuring that they feel comfortable in this life, believing they'll go to heaven in the next life. And Eli's sons, were not obedient to their God-given roles. Very similarly, they abused this position. So, what does that mean for us? Some of you may hear about Eli's sons and think or feel that you're actually maybe more like Phineas or Hophni than you are like Samuel. We may think to ourselves, if people here really knew how sinful we were, they wouldn't love us or they wouldn't want us around. They wouldn't want to be friends with us. So, if you're here today and you have secret, hidden, or unconfessed sin, first, know that we're all very broken and sinful. Um, It may seem obvious 
that that is the case. Um, but I think when we allow it actually to permeate down into us, that is where it makes a difference. I was sitting with Pastor Ken a week ago, and he said that he could not think of something that would be confessed to him that he would truly be startled or stunned by. And I think that that's important, and I hope that that's true of many of us here today, that we could confess to one another, and that those of us who hear that confession would not be stunned, that we wouldn't gasp and say, shame on you, but that we could hear that confession and understand that we are broken as well. I want to ensure that we don't belittle our sins or not care about them. And I think that that's critical as well. When we look at Eli's sons, they are belittling their sins. It's not a big deal. I'm going to keep doing my thing. What we want to do is be a community that's marked by confession and that in that repentance, we can turn away from our idols and towards a loving father. So even though I use the example of us coming forward today with hidden or unconfessed sin, my wife was quick to point out when she was checking this sermon over for me yesterday, she said, Cameron, Eli's son's sin is not unconfessed and it's not hidden. It's there for everyone to see. And that is true. And while I think that often in the church context, we're much more likely to hide our sins, um, there are times and places where it is out in the open. And there are many places in the New Testament, Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5, um, where we have a structure for how to deal with those situations. But we will deal with those another day. Because I've got to work my way through the rest of <laughs> 1 Samuel. So, Eli does not really try hard to rebuke his sons. But we see in verses 23 and 25 that he at least brings it up to them. He tries a little bit, half-heartedly perhaps. But despite bringing it up to them, in 225 it says, they would not listen to the voice of their father. Oh, sorry, I think that's 325. Nope, 225, I was right. <laughs> so they wouldn't listen to him. Their sons have set, or Eli's sons have set their trajectory, and the father Eli's words are too late. But I want to make note of two things here. Number one, Eli is the last one to bring this issue up when he should have been the first. In 2.22, it says he was old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. So he's hearing it over and over. He's hearing it from everybody until he's old. It makes note of Eli being old many, many times throughout chapter 2, 3, and then even on into further chapters, which we'll get to later. But he's hearing about it and he's doing nothing. My second point here is that Eli's words in this section come across as more of a slap on the wrist than a full rebuke, which is warranted. 
Verse 23, he says, why are you doing this? It seems very casual conversation. Hey, my sons, why are you doing this? It's not a good report, he says in verse 24. It's too little too late. He's old, Eli is old. He's out of energy, seemingly, and he's coasting. The way our passage reads today indicates that Eli has turned a blind eye to his sons, which is why God needs to call up Samuel in their place. His sons would not listen to their father's rebuke, and it says in verse 25 that it was God's will to put them to death. That may may seem harsh, but uh, it reminds me a lot of a couple books earlier in Exodus. What does it say about Pharaoh there? It says specifically (laughs) that God had chosen to harden his heart so that his glory may be displayed in the plagues. So God chooses to harden Pharaoh's heart And it's a very similar situation. Actually, in 1 Samuel 2.27, a man comes to preach against Eli before God tells Samuel to preach against Eli, and he references Pharaoh directly. I'll go to that passage real quick. 2.27 says, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? So he's saying here that in his revealing himself in Exodus through the plagues, um, likewise, he's going to reveal himself in judgment to Eli and his sons. So, does this force on God's part, his will to harden their hearts, mean that Pharaoh or Eli's sons are not responsible? Not at all, but that's a subject for another day. We've got quite a few of those today. Um, What I want us to think about today is that we have the ability to be rebuked and corrected. We have the ability to turn away from our sin by the sacrifice of Jesus and his rising to defeat sin and death. For every hard-hearted Bible character, there are far more who are repenting and submitting, which is clearly the desire of God. For every Eli, son, Hophni, or Phinehas, or Pharaoh, we see many more who are repenting. So all of these characters are deeply flawed, like us, except for one, Jesus. Um, So we can assimilate ourselves to them. We're like them in that we are flawed. So in 227 through 36, that man of God comes and pronounces judgment on Eli's household. And Eli has not constrained his sons. He's fallen out of favor with God. He speaks through this man of God, who's likely an angel, to pronounce judgment on Eli. So, this is a long way of saying, since Eli and his sons are not obedient, this is why God is calling up Samuel, who will be obedient. So quickly, we can return to the question about why we may not be hearing from God. We already saw 
that it could be because you're not listening to God's word or his people in the church. But we could see here that we're not hearing from God because we're not obedient. We hold on to unconfessed or cherished sin. We can't bring ourselves to confess some sins that we see as too big or we love our sin. We're addicted to it and we don't want to give it up. So this passage can be very dark and ominous. It can seem depressing and filled with God's judgment. But it's worth pointing out as we look at chapter 2 that there's a little glimmer of hope even here as we look at Eli's bad sons. In verse 21 and in verse 26, we see that Samuel is growing in the presence of the Lord. He continues to grow in stature, with favor, with God and man. And that that hope that's in the background shows us that God has something he's doing, even while his own people are suffering under these bad priests. So my third point is that we should learn to bear with God and his sovereignty and his timing for our lives. How many years had Samuel laid in the place of worship as an apprentice and nothing had happened until God deemed him ready as a young man? Or we can look back at the example of Hannah in Ken's previous sermons. She spent many years begging God for a son before he finally saw fit to give her Samuel. So we must trust that we serve a good God and a loving Father. We must trust that he sees the big picture better than we do. And it's not easy to be patient in an era of Amazon Prime, same delivery, or instant answers on our phone as soon as we can Google something. We live in a time of rapidly decreasing attention spans, but we can be countercultural by being disciplined in intentionally growing and expanding and exercising our patience. We can build our attention spans and devote it to a loving God and a church and our community. And people will notice that, even down to little gestures like consistently and intentionally putting your phone away when you talk to them instead of having it out while you're talking with someone, even your spouse, where I'm guilty. (laughs) There's a fine line here, though, because that is not an excuse to become too patient to a fault and check out like Eli did. So Eli, we might think, seems to do a good job of accepting in chapter 3 that his household is being rejected. But should we be okay with this? Not really. Is Eli's reaction complacency? Probably. It seems that he is resigned to apathy or lukewarmness. He's basically disinterested. We might think he's willing to accept God's message to Samuel in a way that we should emulate, like Job when he's being tested, when his family is killed in Job 121. God says, there it is, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And we can look at that and say, we should be like Job, 
and we should be able to say this even when everything is taken from us. But Eli is something different, and it's not something that we should be like. His apathy is not something we should emulate. Bless you. Eli should be begging God, like we see in many other Old Testament scriptures, for a change in the script, like Numbers 14, where Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites for God not to destroy them in the desert. Moses begs God, hey, don't do this, and God doesn't. But we don't see Eli contesting at all or trying to talk with God about this. It's easy to point to big name failures in large churches where the pastor should have stepped aside a long time ago, and eventually they're exposed for their failures, and they explode in catastrophe, tearing down their churches with them. But what we hear less of are the churches who are headed by men who are on cruise control, like Eli, who coast into retirement in relative comfort, indifferent to God's will, or God's calling on their churches and communities. In Revelation 3.16, God rebukes uh, the Laodicean church for not being hot or cold. It says, because you're being lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is a bad thing. And we need to not be this. We need to heed this warning. So my exhortation to you in this passage is to be patient, like Hannah waiting for her son, or Samuel laying patiently, being um, an apprentice, and waiting for his time. Hannah was not complacent or passive. We see her begging God. She was not comfortably resigned in her patience. As we mentioned earlier, she begged God in prayer for, son, for a son for years. And Samuel didn't even know the Lord yet, it says in chapter 3, but he was dutiful and faithful in his growing responsibilities in the place of worship over the course of many years till he became a young man. I would not call what Eli was doing patient. I would call it lazy. Wait on the Lord certainly does not mean do nothing. It doesn't mean don't rebuke your sons. A better concept of patience for our church is, again, to quote Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. So on a practical level, what does that lead us to? Number one, Samuel points us to our hope in Jesus. This whole text, as we look forward to Samuel being the good priest, actually anticipates a priest even better than Samuel. In chapter 2, verses 21 and 26, we see those little glimmers of hope. Samuel grows in the presence of the Lord. He continues to grow in stature and favor with God and man. And then in 319, it says, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And what this should point us to is Luke 2, 52. And Jesus, as a young man, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So Samuel points us directly to Jesus. And Jesus is the great high priest, the perfect priest 
who intercedes on our behalf. Samuel was a near-term good priest. Jesus is a far better one. So, God has been faithful to raise up an obedient leader in Jesus, a servant leader who listened to his father and was obedient to the point of death on a cross. He's the ultimate example of a leader who died so that we can bow down and worship God and come into relationship with God. Jesus is the exact opposite of Eli's sons who took from God's people, from their sacrifices, and take from God himself. Jesus gave his very life on behalf of God's people and in order to honor God's will. So within the book of Samuel, these words point us to God's provision in preparing the boy Samuel to replace Eli's sons to serve as a priest and prophet to the Israelites. But within the Bible as a whole, we see a far greater provision in the fulfillment of these words in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came to serve as a priest and prophet, not just for the Israelites, but for all of God's people for all of time. Occasionally you see God playing the short game in the Bible, but that's pretty rare. He's almost always playing the long game in years, in decades, in centuries, or millennia. Samuel and the passage today takes place at roughly 1,000 BC. So we can be frustrated with the Israelites that they had bad priests in Hophni and Phinehas. And it's good that Samuel stepped up and is a good priest. They didn't have to deal with the bad priests for too long. But in the grand scheme of things, Israel has to wait 1,000 years past Samuel to get to Jesus and the true fulfillment. So, it may be frustrating to us in that age of instant gratification, as I referenced earlier, but I promise you, God is a good father, and he knows best. So we can trust in God's timing. God's people had to endure years of abusive leadership in Eli's sons while Samuel grew to take their place, and to Israel as a whole, Samuel was a glimmer of Christ a thousand years before they got to see Jesus. So as a community, I hope we can encourage each other and cry with each other when God tells us not yet or no. When God tells Hannah essentially not yet, I want us to think about how we in community can bear with each other. And when God tells us no or not yet, when we can bear with each other, encourage each other, cry with each other. I hope we can point each other to God as a loving father who gives good gifts to his children in his timing. So if you told 15-year-old Cameron 20 years ago that it was going to take two decades for me to get married, I would have been very, very upset. There's a lot of very angsty and bitter poetry from that era <laughs> that I will not be reading you today. That was for lack of a girlfriend. <laughs> it's better that God kept the detail of how long I was going to have to wait. It's better that he kept that to himself. 
because I couldn't have handled it when I was 15. And yet, now on the other side, looking back at God's faithfulness in my life, it was a blessing. He called me just the next step forward. And that's so often what we see, right, in the Bible. He doesn't point and show you how, what's going to happen way down the road. It's just the next step. So now I wouldn't change it for the world. And with full assurance, I can tell you it was worth the wait. And those two decades provided me just enough time to mature to a stage where I needed to be. So in conclusion, my prayer for us, based on this passage, is that we're faithful to hear from God like Samuel. Let us repent of being like Eli and his sons and not actually eager to hear from God or change our ways and be obedient. May we be patient in trusting his will and timing, God's will and timing, as tough as Hannah shows us that can be as she waited for years. So last year, it was Uncle Pastor Steve, was that his name? Pastor Steve? Yeah. Lauded us for being a friendly church. He showed up and said, hey, you guys are really friendly. Not just with each other that you know, but with everybody who shows up. And I love that that is a marker that we continue in being faithful to today, that we embody that. But in addition to being friendly, I hope we can add that we're a church that is listening to God that we're hearing from God and being faithful to obey him. So I pray that we would be attuned to God's word, to his spirit and wisdom from one another in community. So please join me as we close in prayer. Bless you. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for being faithful in pointing to your son, Jesus. We thank you for him being the perfect priest, for him living a perfect and sinful life, for his dying on the cross on our behalf, for rising and defeating death and sin. Thank you that Samuel is a thousand years before and we see your good plan in the works um, here, far before it and far after it. Help us to encourage each other to see you as a loving father who gives good and perfect gifts in your timing. In your holy name we pray, amen.